When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal. Or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Now, if I've told you once, I've told you a hundred times, bury those takes or you'll put the smell of blood in the air. This is Be Real. It's your movie reviewing, reappraising, genre hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. My name is Chance Solom Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. And we're here to discuss a trio of films, per usual, tightly themed this time, I do believe. Uh, Noah, is it fair to say... Alaskan interlopers versus Alaskan beasts? Or just the natural elements occurring in Alaska, yeah. Right. Then this episode is brought to you by like the Tourism Bureau of the state of Alaska. Totally. And also the the wolf demons that may occupy the outlying towns of northern Alaska. Tell them what we're watching. We are watching The Edge, 1997. That's what I incessantly quote because it's a movie written by David Mamet. Uh, The Grey, 2011. And Hold the Dark, this Netflix movie from 2018. Mm -hmm. Um, Our hook is The Edge, which is a a middle-brow, middlingly successful 90s movie that Noah and I both have great affection for. Uh, And it's 25 years old. This week, for all you people who love a, a Hopkins Baldwin, Bart the Bear three hander, <laughs> the producers really, really want to thank him and his handler, <laughs> Doctor Seuss. The Roger Ebert, in his review of The Edge from 1997, I want to say he gave it three out of four stars. He's like, it's quintessential mammoth. It's very snappy. The performances are good, but one full star off for how the thanking of Bart the Bear like cuts the tension at the end of the movie. He was so mad. He called it that the That title worst card thing. really upset him. He called that title card the worst thing about the movie. That's insane. What a stupid thing to focus on. What are y'all upset about, Raj? Yeah. Um and we'll give Bart a lot of. We'll give Bart his his flowers, his salmon and his flowers. Um what to say at the top? Alaska? You- I, I have a fun fact for you. Oh, please. I feel like these movies, which are all, of course, about the the majesty, desolation, and brutality 
of the Alaska wilderness all kind of prove their point by being universally made elsewhere. None of these productions, <laughs> whether it's just because of a, the Alaskan Film Commission wasn't given the tax breaks they wanted, or because it is impossible to get around and move resources, production resources from place to place. They're all made in like Alberta and British Columbia. Yeah, I did notice watching the end credits of all of these. They all have like a very distinct Canada unit. Yes, <laughs> it's true. But it, so let so it you've got to think that they sent like a second unit to Alaska for some of these sweeping like helicopter and uh, small plane shots. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, a few, I think. But I don't think any of the main action from our three wow. films today is... Oh, so in the blinding snow that you can't really make out anything in most of these movies, you're telling me that's Canada? <laughs> it's either a soundstage or it's Canada, yeah. Incredible. Yeah, yeah. So Alaska, too too scary to survive in, too scary to shoot in. Do you, wanna, do you have any desire to go to Alaska? You famously have a tenuous relationship to the outdoors. Yeah. I don't really like extreme temperatures, and I yeah. certainly prefer being inside and having Mm -hmm. an infrastructure that allows me to like, I don't know what what I think is funny about the edge too, is like, these are all city people. They've been counting money all their lives and it is Mm -hmm. like kind of that. uh, (laughs) Yeah. I just don't have the the comfort with the, with the outdoors, even a big park. How many times have you seen the edge? Are we talking about the edge? We are, and I will admit to being a, a far later arriver to The Edge than you. I think this was only my second time. How did you grow up with this film? I remember catching it like on a Saturday afternoon on TNT or something. Course, and I remember distinctly my dad, Big Rod, wandering through being like, what is that, The Edge? That's a great film. And then continuing on his journey. <laughs> And that kind of imbued me with a sense of needing to take it seriously. So I remember like sitting down and watching the, the, the back half of it really intently. Why don't you say the name of the movie and the year it came out and then we'll <laughs> jump in. The Edge, 1997. An intellectual billionaire and two other men struggle to band together and survive after getting stranded in the Alaskan wilderness with a bloodthirsty Kodiak bear hunting them down. Can I check it, please? A photographer with an eye for beauty. Okay, great. Let's do one more. (laughs) Nice-looking lady. Your wife? Yes. Why'd you ask? A man of wealth who lives through books. Charles knows everything. Got a question to ask him. I seem to retain all these facts, but putting them to any useful purpose is another matter. Each the essence of the civilized man. Well, Charles, we're going on an impromptu adventure. You come too. Oh, all that money. Never knowing what people value you for. And I think your wife's pretty cute too. So, how are you planning to kill me? Hold on! But when civilization disappears... Why do we even think they'll come looking for us? Our friend's a billionaire. You know what happens when you misplace one? All they have is each other to rely on. Most people lost in the wilds, they die of shame because they didn't do the one thing which would have saved their lives. Thinking. Their will to survive. And the question... Why would I want to kill you, Charles? Why would I want to do that? For my wife. 
of where the greatest danger lies. I think that this movie too, like has a great first act that the synopsis doesn't even allude to where you are set up with, cause this is sure. It's a movie about guys being stuck in the wilderness versus a bear, but it's also very concerned with the class warfare happening in the party that arrives in Alaska from New York uh, to do, to presumably do this uh, photo shoot of Anthony Hopkins wife played by Elle McPherson uh, and the photographer is a fast-talking Alec Baldwin uh, who is just looking for authenticity mm-hmm. and may or may not be in a double indemnity type situation uh, to knock off uh, <laughs> Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, there's a, there's the class element at play. And then because, of course, it's a mammoth script, it's definitely examining the perils of masculinity and it's not like rejecting them as toxic because he's not into that but he's definitely into like studying the kind of whacked out inevitability of what happens when a bunch of men start competing who are you talking about anthony hopkins charles yeah and yeah well i think the 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 first act yes the first act does such a nice job in so they they're in this lodge um run by who's that actor uh lq jones he's got this like really horrendous like scratch scar down his face and this this uh um this place where they're staying this lodge is just like filled with the knickknackery of you know like having very little communication with the outside so needing to kind of you know uh hoard a bit and yeah and then there's like every character basically all the lead characters sort of like take a shot at charles Mm -hmm. and he either embarrasses himself or is able to like sort of you know point his way out of it with his smarts there's this really great scene yeah where the lodge owner's like i'll give you five dollars if you can tell me what's on the back of this canoe paddle i'm holding you know and then of course anthony hopkins like snaps back with like it's a rabbit with a pipe you know and of course it's a fucking rabbit with a pipe yeah but then they truly kind of like pick apart this character i would say in a sequence where they're trying to surprise charles for his birthday Mm -hmm. and end up scaring the shit out of him so much so that he takes out like a whole coffee station and like breaks a lot of dishware right which, yeah, you get the feeling that Bob, the younger photographer who may or not, may not be sleeping with the model played by Elle McPherson, is like all, like trying in these moments to rub in the fact of like, well, you're the older husband. Like, can you take a scare, Charles? Can your ticker take a scare? Yes. It's, it is almost like it, that is the first obvious violence that happens against Charles. It's like, oh, everyone here might be trying to kill you. Like it would mm-hmm. benefit all of them that this like weird, smart, you know, maybe conniving guy would, would be out of the picture. I think that this is just tremendous Hopkins. That's been my oh. takeaway when I watched the film. Because you're kind of into, you know what, you were seven years after Silence of the Lambs and he's about to take the giant Hannibal check in a couple years and he's in that like legend of the fall mask of Zorro 
like elder statesman before he becomes grandpa statesman he's just elder statesman here but this is a fascinating character and like brilliantly performed it kind of goes back to like some of his early characters in like you know the mutiny on the bounty or like i remember we watched this version of uh a doll's house where he plays torvald and you know in those early days he is like very he often plays characters who are like too ignorant or too unemotional and it makes them sort of easy cuckolds or like a a husband or a character that kind of loses um you know loses the movie and he's tapped back into that here in a really interesting way where like he in this like kind of understated human way like he just is he's a little um insecure like the the um uh Harold Perrineau is the actor's name who plays Steve who's I, I think he is he the like the set dresser or something for the photography unit he's one of the people who ends up getting stuck in the woods and there's a scene where he's just like you know what Charles you're all right man and Anthony Hopkins very earnestly is just kind of like oh am I and he's kind of asking it like as a question or like, what do you mean? Or like, I'm not sure I agree with you. It's a great performance. It is. Yeah. I mean, I think too, the, the, the character background there is he's like a production assistant who, because of like some, some smart, like script trickery, you like see the, the main production designer kind of like getting a cold on the, the opening plane ride. Uh, mm-hmm. And then he's like unable to, like he would have been the one in the plane. So there's all this like who ends up where and because I've seen this movie before of course I paid special attention to how it is in fact like El McPherson the wife being like oh you should go into the wilderness and die uh like as a suggestion for him like getting <laughs> air and whatever and it is almost cuz I think the bigger question and we can spoil this 25 year old movie I feel like fairly quickly cuz the interesting conversation is like on these characters intentions like I was sort of picking apart the whole movie of who's trying to kill him the most and like, how are they going about doing that? And it is really interesting to see like how Charles ends up out of his element on the edge, if you will. uh, And who puts him there? Well, but they, of course, this is pithy, but they make the mistake of he's out of his element in this like vacation lodge and they make the mistake of putting him in his element. Right. Like he has all this latent jeopardy information that is like, you know it finds its hole it's jeopardy information but i think the movie is smart in showing pretty quickly like with the compass episode the first compass episode that he doesn't always know how to like practice these trivia things Mm -hmm. so like he knows that a compass will you know point north and how to make one but doesn't know like what other factors like at this altitude or at this whatever that would potentially mess with that readout so trust it blindly and then i mean they waste a whole day just on walking in a big circle because the compass is leading them the wrong way this brings me to something i've wanted to ask you since rewatching the movie and i want you can do a joke answer but then i want your real answer this is the forum who are you in this kind of survival situation like what do you do i'm definitely bob Okay. That doesn't definitely feel I'm, south chance. Right. I would be the one who like wouldn't know how to do anything, but could bring my best like Frank Grillo antagonism energy to undermining someone with an actual idea. Yeah. 
you'd be a hell of a doubter out there. Right. But however, why well, we could talk about this with uh, the gray, but sometimes the Frank Grillos of the world are right. Sure. And they're right about... Sometimes you're being led the wrong fucking way. It's true. It's true. You didn't ask, but I'll just say... Which I would be you? just truly horrible at like any kind of like strategic functioning. But I think I would do well in kind of like the heavily edited compressed space of this movie. Because I would just walk in one direction and be like, they'll find us. As long as I keep walking in one direction... So I would be great at being like the fourth guy who's just like, and we'll walk forever. I think you would be eaten very quickly. Come on. I think you would be, you would be great in a scene where you like get to talk a little bit and I get to tell you like that you are dying. Oh, sure. I am. You are. Just think about your, just think about that cool house in Astoria and your cool wife, uh, but you're dying. (laughs) And those deck boards that you replaced this weekend. But the nails are slowly coming up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, now that that's out of the way, back to the edge. Um, I want to make a point about this being like a pretty key Alec Baldwin movie. Oh, I th- yeah. I think of him, you know, being a big star in the 80s and the 90s. But really, it's just the late 80s. Like, by the time you get to the other side of Hunt for Red October, where he's like, "Eh, you're going to have to give me a truckload more money if you want me to be in Patriot Games. The choices that he makes are preposterous. Um, I'm going to rattle some off here. Uh, The Marrying Man, Prelude to a Kiss, uh, The Getaway Remake, The Shadow, which we've done on this show, the Juror, Heaven's Prisoners, Ghosts of Mississippi, Bad Oscar Bait, Bad Thrillers. <laughs> um, like, this is a pretty... Like, he really needs this movie, and I think it's kind of key to understanding his, like, short-lived kind of stardom. Because, like, he slides perfectly into this role of, like, the second guy who's movie star handsome, who's great at talking. We know from Glenn Gary that he can handle that mammoth dialogue. He loves it. But he it loves really, it. He loves it. It really is like an old school. It reminded me of like a 50s actor like Arthur totally. Kennedy or Brian Don Levy who would be that guy in a Western who you were like, look at that handsome guy. Like, I really want to believe in him. But like the movies he's in, they never let me believe in him. Like, he's really not to be trusted. And then after The Edge, um, which The Edge bears that out, he kind of moves into his like Pearl Harbors like five years later and he's the... He's the gruff supporting uh, Gravitas guy. Well, I think that this is the beginning point to uh, to like the his Thirty Rock character, where yeah. he becomes like this supporting antagonist figure who is charming and scene stealing, but not necessarily carrying the property in a protagonist role. Yeah, there's a weird. Um like paradox to Baldwin, which was like, whenever I think he's being like deathly serious, I think he's really like unintentionally funny. And whenever he's being really funny, I'm like, wow, this is a really good performance as Jack Donahue. Um, And it's very seldom that the two kind of like line up quite right. But I think they almost do in the edge. Cause it's just like, here's a guy who like always knows what to say, 
barely ever knows what to do and just thinks he's so smart. Yes. And I just love, he does it like three or four times where um, Charles will say something like they're after something horrible has happened. Oh, what's his face stabbed himself in the leg and they're like standing by the water. And he's like, wow, this is a lot different than uh, doing cocaine off a model's hip bone. And Anthony Hopkins goes, how so? And, or in what way? (laughs) And then all he can do is just like sit on that for like three or four seconds and then just like break out into this wheezing laugh. And it's really, it's really well done. Cause yeah, he really does believe this character and you buy into that, that he can charm himself in and out of any situation. Yeah, but there's nothing to him. Like Anthony Hopkins, like asked that question earnestly, and the only thing he can do is laugh. Like I don't have an answer for that. Are you serious? Like I wouldn't even begin to know. Yeah, yeah. Um, we in talking about the Baldwin performance, we must talk about Charles. Charles. So this is the problem of it being a David Mamet script. There are a couple a couple moments where it's like, okay, David. Uh, one of his things that. It's just like a byproduct of like um, American Buffalo or Glengarry Glen Ross. It's just the just sheer enormity of the direct address. And I think they <laughs> the point I think of it is to have everybody showing such respect to this guy, but this like false respect that they just use his yeah. name in every sentence. Um, but it it definitely starts to feel like a like a trick of the of the dialogue of the, of the actual writing after a while, especially at the end. And always with like the non rhotic R like it's a Tennessee Williams pronunciation. Charles. Right. Oh, uh, Charles, there's a piece of wood through my leg. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's broken. I don't really feel hundred percent right now. Charles, <laughs> the one that really got me because going into the movie, the minute, first time he says it, you're like, well, buckle up. We're about to get 200 more Charles. The boy, the one that really cracked me up is after Charles nearly has the heart attack and they're all singing happy birthdays. You can hear Baldwin in the happy birthday song. Happy birthday to Charles. Like you can hear even in, even in song. Even yeah. in. I love that. Oh my God. Let me ask you, I was pretty impressed technically. And this is a movie from 25 years ago. I was impressed technically by the, airplane going down to the lake sequence on a technical level. It's a little goofy, but it's still horrifying in a way that it like, had they done the whole thing digitally now, it would have been like, okay. Totally. Well, so I want to talk a little bit about Lee Tomahori who directed the movie. Um, yeah, but you're right. The, the shot where the birds actually hit the propeller plane is like, it's like drawn on animation. It looks just absolutely preposterous, but you don't have time to react. And it immediately cuts to this reverse shot of this hole in the windshield and these four men screaming with like bloody feathers in their mouth. (laughs) Blood and feathers all over them. Yeah. I think it uses the reaction shots. Like what you don't see is far more, is far more terrifying. Um, And we can talk about the, the plane crash in the gray too, and how it compares. I think it's similar. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Less is more, guys. I And then they actually appear to have crashed a practical plane into a practical lake. Definitely. Which is just, you know, that's going to look better, man. I think that 
watching this, I, f- I felt a little wistful just for like... Wistful? Yes, Noah. <laughs> because... Tell me more. <laughs> the opening title sequence, and we can do a tight 15 on Goldsmith if you want. Um, <laughs> we must. I mean, Tomahori shoots it like Lord of the Rings. Just like the absolute um, outsized majesty of all this. And I just kind of felt like... I watched this movie, too, the other day from the 80s, this uh, John Voight, Eric Roberts movie called Runaway Train, which is about two conflicts and like an unstoppable type situation on a train in Alaska. And they also shot it in British Columbia. But just like that there's going to be a window now in film history from like the seventies through the nineties where like shooting on location in really like intense, epic widescreen ways, which they they just won't do it. There would be no reason um, in a dollars and cents getting this done kind of way to shoot this movie the way that Lee Tomahori shot it. Um, and it made me a bit wistful. Right. Well, to the Lord of the Rings of it all. I mean, I think you're seeing that now in these like, multi-million dollar TV show things. Uh, They're actually like using some of these practical locations, but your point is taken that, yeah, like a mid, like the edge is like a middle of the road budget movie. It's not a $300 million movie Uh, to have a production like this actually go to location. Like that would be, that'd be nuts. Yeah. But his prerogative was to make it as epic as fucking possible. And he succeeds. At least I'm a hoary interesting director too because like he he breaks out internationally internationally with uh once we're warriors which uh he's from new zealand and uh is of maori descent and that's that was what kind of what his first movie was about and then it's this and then he kind of you know (laughs) noah never feel bad for a man who's directed a bond movie but i kind of do because he kind of makes die another day and it's like you know, arguably one of the worst Bond movies ever and uh Triple X, the second Triple X movie. And uh kinda of, that's kinda State of, of the it. Union? He, yeah. I wasn't searching for that, but thank you. Um It's my favorite Lee Tomahori movie. <laughs> oh. Just better kidding. more yeah. than the edge? No. Yeah, this one definitely has that to your both of your points, has that kind of epic Hollywood movie they don't make them like this anymore quality to it that you're just sort of rooting for it out of the gate um and I think it really is coming from yeah clearly a director who finally had access to you know this kind of Hollywood budget and scope of the late 90s and you know has a script with good auspices on his hands that should be uh yeah just have just have fun with it uh this movie is really fun. There's like, you know that from the the jump to like these other movies are like a little self-serious if I can uh, tip my hand a little bit ahead of them. But this one's like having fun sure. from the beginning. Like it's making jokes. Like there's a the first two lines of dialogue are this, of course, like the whole movie is like, is this guy getting cucked? So like that is established when an air, like a, an airplane mechanic's just like, oh, I'd fuck your wife. I mean, I really like your plane. And that that we're sort of off to the races. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And the last thing I want to say about how it looks is all the. It's also just like it's not only epic and grand on location, but just crystal clear. I mean, like hold the yeah. dark is clearly shot on location, but just like this side of um, 
you know, a $40 million movie not having this prerogative. Like, it just becomes kind of hazier and smaller and, like, slightly more docu-realistic as opposed to... Right. These other two favor, yeah, a docu-realism that I think keeps them from being as epic uh, as maybe they want to be and definitely as epic as The Edge is. Uh, I feel like we didn't do right. our even a, a tight 15 on Jerry Goldsmith, but I was texting you this earlier. Let's do it. You know, I think both of these movies would have benefited just from a fucking horn section. Give it to me. <laughs> and did you did you notice that it, during the end credits, it's like the... Uh, you know, Charles's theme or whatever, but like in jazz, p like jazz piano and bass, uh, like upright bass. It's incredible. I clearly turned it off too soon. <laughs> That's you clearly turned it off too soon because it's an incredible like jazz hook too. Are you one of those cinephiles who will like watch the end credits in your own home and sit there and give it the five minutes out of respect? It- if it's Jerry Goldsmith music, if I like right. the music, I mean, this one, I was sort of curious to see where it was shot. So right. I like let that play out. Uh, and then I was so compelled by how prominently they thanked that fucking bear that I just like had to <laughs> roll with it. Yeah. I mean, Goldsmith is just like, yeah, the epitome of epic Hollywood horns. And this is an awesome score. And really like when you think about, you know, a California and Texas fitting in Alaska or whatever the crazy stat is about how fucking big Alaska actually is. Like this is the movie that gives it that treatment of size. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think too, you know, not only have movies lost that sort of epic quality, even if they're like a little cheesy, which definitely this movie's a little cheesy. Um, but I don't, there there are so many, like, scores are so unnoticeable and unmemorable now, I feel. Like, this one really, like, endeavors to find a theme that it returns back to. Like, I think Howard Shore and, like, James Horner, like, all these people who sort of came up in the 90s and had epic properties attached to them. Like, we're never afraid of finding something familiar to come back to to establish, like, a larger tonal theme. And I just don't notice that as much in movies now. You want to say anything about the movie like as it progresses? Should we talk about Bart? Should we talk about the bear? I love that there's a bear. That's another thing too. Like what kind of a movie now would fucking hire a a bear? Absolutely not. No, he'd be a computer. (laughs) He would be a desktop just sitting there. Um, Yeah. He'd just be a, a MacBook Pro. Um no, and they also like built a animatronic bear. I was doing yeah. a little reading about the bear. Love the bear. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this there were a lot of scenes where it was that bear running at them. Real bear. Yeah. Bart's and Bart, by the way, is like a you know, he's an old he's an old hand. Um <laughs> <laughs> He was in uh he's been in White Fang. He worked with Anthony Hopkins previously in Legends of the Fall. Uh 12 monkeys wow a lot of tv bart was a bart should have just been called one bear (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i mean you just can't you can't really 
substitute for like, okay, so in this shot, they're trying to cross a ravine on a fallen log and Anthony Hopkins is hanging from the log and Bart the Bear is angrily shaking the log. <laughs> like that's something yeah, that's he's pissed happening. At that log. That's happening in an image that you're seeing. And that is just, you know, pretty great. Pretty unimpeachable. It's bananas. It is pretty unimpeachable. Though I have to say, though, and I don't know if you noticed this, but particularly in the sequence with Anthony running towards the log, I think it's pretty yeah. obvious a few times that it's a stunt double. Oh, sure. Hopkins is not hoofing it through those groves of trees. Hopkins is like hanging off. I was surprised on this viewing how much it is Hopkins like hanging off that log by his duffel bag or yeah. whatever, his his messenger bag that he's carrying around uh, with the flares in it. Don't use the flares. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's it's especially, oh, I noticed it too when he like, the bear's chasing him and he, he like jumps into all those like intersecting logs to like get away for a moment. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. But, but I mean, Charles has already had the skit shirt out of him. We don't need him to die doing a stunt. No. <laughs> now, Anthony Hopkins is about to buy a new home in Malibu with his Hannibal check. He doesn't need to die on the set and start of the doing edge. Un- in not I mean, only 25 time. years uh, twenty five years away from doing the most unhinged TikToks you've ever seen. But I think Charles has what is one of your favorite film motifs, which is old man strength. He's going to kill the bear, Noah. He does this whole fucking movie in a blazer. I yep. love that. <laughs> I mean, it, the blazer doesn't look great by the end, but he never takes off this blazer. Yeah. And yeah, the old man strength underneath that that wool is, is unbelievable. Can we talk about the ending? It's spoiler for The Edge. If you don't want to know all about The Edge, uh, go rent it. We both love it. Do you, do you believe that Bob intended to kill him the whole time? It sounds like you do. I believe that... Bob and the wife had on this trip conspired to find an opportunity to kill Charles in a way that looked like an accident. Yes. Okay. And I think that it is proven by the way that Bob at the end says that, but your wife wasn't in on it at all. Mm -hmm. He's like doing one last solid for this this person for his partner in crime. And then I think it's, you know, when uh, he gives her the watch, Charles gives the wife the watch at the ends. And also she's not that excited to see him. (laughs) Like she doesn't like, I I was noticing this time, like no one's really that excited to see him. Like really only the press are the one that like make the move at him, but his actual, the people he came, the party that came with him to the lodge, like even the wife like doesn't run down to greet him. I think he's a pretty cold, unapproachable, like lonely man who becomes totally. like movie star watchable because of this insane situation. But I think he spends the rest of his life like, um, I don't want to say like with like a minor neurodivergence, but just being like really separate from everyone else, thinking in a way that no one else thinks, not feeling the things that they all feel, not being interested in the things that they're interested in. I guess I favor a slightly more like incidental situation where it's just kind of like they keep 
by virtue of how they feel about this man, like pushing him into situations where it's like, could you just like, you know, like kind of get away from me a bit? And it seemed, I, I almost wondered if like Charles himself kind of like incepted uh, Bob with the idea. I think there's a, yeah, I think there's a universe too in which uh, for the wife, what's her name? Mickey Morse. <laughs> Come oh, on. Mickey. I think there's a universe in which you're right, where Mickey, the inscription on the watch, like, thanks for all the nights, was just a reference to the fact that Charles, like, wouldn't go out with her. And Bob was, like, her only friend and was, like, doing the going out, doing cocaine off a model's hip bone that they wanted to do. And yeah, that Charles has always been kind of a wet blanket who doesn't want to go along anywhere. So, yeah, I mean, I think there is a version of this. And also that's why the the big question is why would she be so reckless as to in one trip to the jeweler have both his wedding or both his birthday gift and uh, Rob's Bob's uh, watch engraved and like leave the receipt in the thing. If she didn't, well, if she didn't think it was a big deal, like if she wasn't afraid of getting caught because there was nothing to catch. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Like it's one of those things where it's not, it's, it's, it's sort of a circumstantial evidence where it doesn't prove nothing, nothing proves that they were having an affair. And one could say that like, after, I mean, how long are they even out there? A week? Maybe if there's that. kind of a time, there's kind of a time jump. I felt like, cause I was trying to count. They were until they kill the bear. It's only like three days. But then there's kind of a time jump where they're all like wearing the bear furs and they're like a little bit more rugged looking that almost feels like right. there's they've eaten the bear for like, you know, three or four days. And now they're continuing their journey because also like uh, Bob's pretty badly injured in the confrontation with the bear. And then he's like, oh, fine. A week later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I guess yeah. my point is that maybe Bob just like got so annoyed with how annoying Charles is. and was just like, yeah, maybe Charles put the idea in his head. You're the one who keeps asking for this. Well, and I wonder too, with this, this idea of like these kind of these warring styles of masculinity. And I do think it's really funny the way Mamet's script kind of humanizes the billionaire in the end. Um, but yeah, I wonder after all that time out there too, if Bob kind of looks at Charles, he's like, oh, you're actually like, you're not just a wet blanket. You may be more of a threat than I thought. Like you, you have such an upper hand on me after all of this. Like, how am I going to be able to like continue cuckolding you? So like, thanks for the idea, pal. I'm going to kill you in this shack. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think there is maybe a version of this movie that has that like one more beat where... You know, it's not just fade to black on Hopkins's face being like, these people saved my life, but him acknowledging a little bit more that, holy shit, like maybe I, maybe I'm the one who killed them. Well, this is, I have to ask you about the, cause I find, I find the last shot of the movie very perplexing cause he, he makes it back after Bob perishes and what does he do to him when Bob blacks out and they're in the shack and he's like reading his little medical notebook? 
I assume that he had like, I guess I, I, I uh, uh, conflated this movie and the Sofia Coppola one where they cut off uh, Colin Farrell's leg. I thought he was going to like wake up and have a stump and then, you know, he was, uh, but it, it never really indicates that. No, I think he just like fi- ad- admirably finished the surgery. I don't know why it faded to black. Okay. Um, But so he walks back up the dock and the press is all like, Elon Musk, Elon Musk, what was it like out there? And he gives the watch back to Elle McPherson as like a, fuck you. <laughs> and then turns around and they're like, yeah, so what, what ha- um how did th- how did they die right is that the question and yeah he says they How'd died your die? yeah they died saving my life fades to black i what is happening in that moment cuz it feels like a weird it almost kind of feels like a like a studio note where they were just like make sure he's like you know appropriately emotional at the end but you could tell me too that it's like something weirder about like the inevitability of that emotion finally setting in or his ego being inflated. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the studio note here is like, make it somewhat uplifting at the end that like, Oh, they've given him perspective that he's going to live his life in a different way. But I mean, also the death of these people has given him like solidified his billionaire status in a way because like he could have just been the, nameless guy that you'd sort of heard of who died on that you know that lodge incident in alaska and like aren't rich people (laughs) super annoying but having survived it like creates and having no one to challenge the mythology of how he did so really like i think elevates him in a way where it's like they put me back on course like i was a listless billionaire who was like reading too many books and never getting my hands dirty and never really like becoming a you know an american god and now i have everything yeah. <laughs> right like in this because like, he wasn't kind of interesting per- that was his right, problem per- he wasn't interesting yeah, right and what he has now is the fact that he has a story to tell at a cocktail party for the rest of his fucking life yeah he can go on larry king now uh, people will ask him questions and people will ask him questions not just the way that lq jones does asking him for an investment in the the expanded lodge because that's the only reason people talk to him now is because they want something from him. Right. Right. Yeah. There's, I think there is kind of something, something darker and, and stranger in there of like the best version of this guy whose life was already like perfect. He's like, now he has, I finally have control of my narrative. Thanks to these fuck ups who died of shame in the woods. Totally. They died of shame. They did. They die of shame. Um, that's a, a a line that comes up maybe one too many times in the film. That uh, <laughs> I love when Harold Barrow is just like Charles. Talk me to sleep. Tell me why people die in the woods again. They die of shame, my friend. They die of shame. Can I think now about, I can sleep. I think that is a that's an interesting as 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 much as it is kind of so writerly that it's like very goofy um it is an interesting kind of thing to think about in one's life of like if you're in a bad situation like don't obsess over like how you got here and what else you could have done just like you know 
the only way out is through Under Armour or whatever. Yeah, the yeah the people the people who die are the people who try not to get found because they're so embarrassed that it happens. Right. You know, I mean, I think maybe that's not true of actual survival situations, but it's definitely true of movie survival situations. <laughs> Imagine if, like, on sort of like local news casts in like the great american west like whenever anyone like died tragically the person in like billings montana the broadcaster was like and unfortunately another man has died of shame after falling to his death off of a a large rock yeah that sounds like a pacific northwest thing of like oh somebody was found in a park you know they clearly cause of death shame yeah the mountain lion ripped out his jugular and his intestines, but he did die of shame in the end. Yeah, but it was really just yeah. knowing that, uh, yeah, he was he was done for that killed him. Yep. <laughs> Should we rate this bad boy? I would love to. On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories, a good or bad for technical quality and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good, bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to King Todd, asshole. Bad bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered unfortunately include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, master. Got all that? Time for a rating. I think that this is textbook, textbook, good, good. I would agree. Um, It's not a perfect movie, but the things that are imperfect about it often serve to make it more entertaining. Um, Totally. Which is, (laughs) I don't know how you pull that off, but it is something that happens in a lot of movies we like. Um, So yeah, good, good for sure. Yeah, there's something charming about how goofy a lot of it is. Uh, And just like you never, the movie's not afraid to do anything. So it makes it really compelling sequence to sequence of, there's no like rule to when the bear is going to come back. There's a lot of like jump thrills. Uh, Yeah, it's just like a well done, constantly taught and i really like how the last act becomes kind of uh it's like the bear is not even fucking around anymore it's just these two men realizing that maybe they're home free and like what that realization does to desperate people yeah and i think even in all of its kind of heightened goofiness the the themes about like dudes in the woods in crisis are 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 somehow like a little easier to swallow than some of the ones we're about to talk about where it's just like anything could happen you would behave crazily you would feel like bonded blood brothers one second and then like as soon as like the major you know food chain superiority figure was gone you go like right back to being the crazy people that you were um which is all i think like much more believable than um right well we'll talk about the gray 
Yeah. Yep. Good, good. All right. The Gray 2011. After their plane crashes in, you guessed it, Alaska, six oil workers are led by a skilled huntsman to survival, but a pack of merciless wolves haunts their every step. A job at the end of the world. I work security, protecting men from the dangers they cannot see. There's not a second goes by when I'm not thinking of you in some way. Going home, guys. Let's keep it moving. Food. If we don't move and work now, we're all freeze to death. Somebody will find us. They gotta know that plane went off the radar. Nobody's gonna find us. Not here. We figure out what way is south and we start walking. This will be one of those wild stories you tell at a party. <laughs> this movie, I feel like, is burned. The, the theatrical poster of this movie is burned in my brain forever, where it's Liam Neeson's big ass face with like a bloody scrape on the side. Just a chunk of his cheek missing. A chunk of his cheek missing. Yeah. It's like, I remember, uh, yeah, this is like a, the, one of the first, I remember watching this movie years ago. It was like one of the first movies I streamed on Netflix. Uh, and it was, oh. yeah, I remember when that going to Netflix was like a big deal. Um, sure. But yeah, I'll forever remember the, it was a real turning point. I think in uh, this and uh, taken were real turning points in Neeson's career. Yeah, this is a little further after Taken than I remember. Taken, I think, is 08. Um, but, like, it was this movie where it was kind of like, oh, he's going to keep doing this. It's now going to be, like, <laughs> Neeson, Neeson versus, or, like, Neeson in a version of, uh, like, a, like, a cheaper version of the action movies of the previous 15 years. And he's going to churn, and for the most part, we're going to let go. We are going to like him. Yeah, he he's able to revitalize a genre here that is mostly stagnant and he doesn't even need it to be a two-hander. Like he it can just be him. Right. Unbelievable. It's a one-hander I mean, the, with broken shoes. It's a one-hander taped to it. Yeah, and it's it's kind of in the like the vein of something like Sylvester Stallone would have done 15 years earlier. A cliffhanger. 20 yeah, exactly 25 years earlier 30 years earlier well cliffhanger is like what 92 or something so yeah great um great fucking movie and this sure. is joe carnahan too writer director based on a short story fine uh but of course the director of <laughs> smoke and aces and the a team kind of a mcgee acolyte <laughs> not a director who's made a ton of movies that i like um certainly i think we can say that uh, at the job but this is definitely like i think his most serious film i think he is taking it very seriously by virtue of um yeah just how punishing it is totally yeah and it's 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 a 
decently serious script too. It's not so the violence is not like that heightened in it. And it's not, um, you know, sort of stylized. It's meant to be very like grounded. Well, and this is the one too, where like, I, I guess we could have said this at the top, but like this is the one where I think you can draw the clearest line from where this like genre actually starts, which is Jack London books. Um, totally. Just the, the elemental American uh, white dude versus with a dog, with a dog versus a wolf versus the snow, <laughs> whatever. And I think that just kind of the, the hints of that source, the hints of inspirations of London in the source material, like get him to take it really seriously and uh, just th- think about death a lot, basically. I have to say my favorite and maybe the most incongruous thing about this movie is the repeated uh, poem that they keep going back to. Which Yeah, Neeson's dad has a poem. Neeson's dad, if I could recite it for you. Please. Uh, Once more into the fray, into the last good fight I'll ever know. Live and die on this day. Live and die on this day. I feel like that poem also needs, like its final line is obviously, and this movie is called The Gray. <laughs> when I watched this movie with my friend Tim 10 years ago for the first time, that was his his exact joke was that it was so on the nose. He's like, live and die this day. Live and die this gray. <laughs> <laughs> live and die. This movie's called The Gray. Yeah. <laughs> The rhyme, the rhyme is too tempting for sure. It really starts out like a Paul Schrader movie, um, where it, like it's this guy at the end of the earth, God's lonely man, thought about killing himself, keeping a diary for some reason, so this movie can start. Yes, he's he's written this like really ambiguous three sentence handwritten note to his wife, who's maybe dead, maybe divorced him, maybe is at home waiting for him. And what I think is a little hokey from the jump here is the it just cuts back to this the same fucking shot of them they're like in bed together. It's like eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, where they're like in bed together and she's like, Don't be afraid, and then they'll like do a trick where like the sheet rips off and he's like in the snow, or like she says, Don't be afraid, oh. and then starts to like uh, and then it's a bear, you know, or a wolf or whatever. <laughs> some, but the photo- some of Alaska's uh the photo of her is such an like unironically like uh like douchey husband idealized. It looks like a stock photo they would use on a reductress meme of like Right. When you wake it's up. It's the, the photo that you get something. in the frame that you're supposed to replace. Yeah. But Carnahan is like wives, man. What what inspires us if not wives? You know, wives of all stripes, dead wives, divorced wives, estranged wives, even wives you're still with. Yep. Wow. Um, and that's so what that was I was like, alluding I- to earlier. Yeah. Which is just like the thesis of this movie, I think, has less to do with like the bond among the men because it is such a one hander. Not that there's not some interesting bonding dynamics, but it, at the end of the day, it's sort of like these guys are fucking barbarians. Uh, but you know what they all have in common? The women who Wives. are pictured in their wallets. <laughs> yes. And let's collect all their wallets so we don't remember that they were dead. Yeah. Or we don't forget that they were they're dead. Yeah, let's talk about the Motley crew that's along for them. Uh, Dermot Mulroney in a pretty understated performance. Uh, Frank Grillo 
is going to launch this one note character into the next 15 years of action of B action movies that he'll do. And he becomes uh, a big Carnahan guy in the uh, yeah. top shop and boss level. Is two most recent. I thought movies. Dallas Roberts was pretty good in this. I would uh, agree. Henrik. Um, and then, of course, this will not be the last time in this genre that we talk about James Badge Dale. That bastard. You know what he died of? Being Costello's other man on the inside? Shame. Oh. He at definitely he, dies of shame in this at one. At least he died quickly of shame. Let's talk about the uh, the plane going down sequence. Yeah. I thought this was the... I, I think that them in the plane is maybe some of the best filmmaking in the movie. Because like you, you like have this... You have these like men one-upping each other and like trying not to let the turbulence fuck with them too much. And the movie's smart in giving you like two turbulence sequences. There's like the turbulence where it puts the guys on edge, and then there's like the surprise the plane's going down turbulence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that it's a really well balanced, you know, sort of prelude and then intense action sequence that is not overshot. There's no, it keeps you in the plane. There's no wide shot of the plane on fire. You just kind of have to infer that from Liam Neeson, like poke, trying to poke his head out the window to see what's going on. And then even when the plane's coming apart, you like really, the geography is obscure enough that you only see like sort of things of light coming in sort of in a creepy way of knowing that, Oh my God, like where that light's coming in means the plane's not there anymore. Uh, And then like, as it's actually going down, you see uh, much like the theatrical poster, Liam Neeson's face, like in most of the shot. And then you just see blurry green trees getting closer and closer, like over his head. Cause that side of the plane's gone too. And I just thought that that was an intensely like, that was a jarring and intense sequence. I agree. And as much as I like praised the edge, I think this movie does a great job of being like, I know like it's budget 25 million is a lot of money, but it was also like distributed by like open road. Like it feels like it's like the most expensive kind of like indie version of this movie that it could possibly be. And the visual stylings go into that. Um, And even though like it switches visual style, like a lot of times from like being super handheld and obvious CGI to the scene where Frank Grillo kind of gives up by the log is just like, um, like a completely static shot that doesn't cut for like 60 seconds. Um, it doesn't really feel to me like it's shot in Alaska in a real place. It more feels like you're just kind of in Liam Neeson's like death dream. And sometimes it uses the unreality of that to its advantage where like there'll be like one light illuminating all the snow behind Neeson while he's running and a wolf will come out of the back and take down the guy behind him. But because all of it is kind of unreal, the CG works really well. And I think the movie is if if a, if a little like chaotic, like pretty smart and is able to get away with a lot of stuff that way. Totally, and I think the the wolves too are not are not overused. No, you know they they mostly come out at night when you do see them. Just like seeing these gray blurs on the snow is scary enough, and you know even that scene with when they first kind of encounter the pack and you see all their glowing eyeballs. Like even to see just how many sets of dots there are is terrifying. You know, yeah. and I think it's really smart too. I mean, as we say with all like thing from hell movies like the less you see of the actual monsters uh 
at play, like the scarier they are because they could look like fucking anything. And I think this movie also uses sound design totally. to have like a, a bunch of the wolves be like, and then like there's the one which is like, <laughs> you know, and you're like, oh, that's the that's the bad motherfucker one. And Neeson's like, I think we just heard a challenge to the alpha wolf and he put it down. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's what it sounded like happened in his defense. <laughs> Neeson being uh, a wolf expert is super funny in this movie. And of course, is a contrivance of the genre that I'm absolutely willing to forgive and enjoy. But it is nonetheless quite funny of... We should say, to connect these ideas, if people have no idea what happens in the gray, the plane crashes in what is, I believe, the wolf's, checks notes, kill radius? Um, oh, yeah, that's a, that must be a real thing. They have a kill radius of up to 30 miles, these gray wolves. Gray with an E. 300. 300 miles? Well, they're 300. not gonna, They're not going to be able to make it out of 300 miles. Well, they're hoping they're at the edge. Yeah. In its broiness, I mean, I think that the Frank Grillo character is like very believable. Um, of, the Grillo one, yo, totally. Yeah, just as the guy who's just like, who the fuck? I don't know. Like, who made you in charge? And all of his, all of his anger is kind of just like hyper masculine and like irrational. But he just kind of wants to be that voice of dissent because he doesn't like that he's not in charge. Well, unlike The Edge, where there's that great line where it's like, he's a billionaire. Don't you know what they do when billionaires go missing? Uh, in this one, Grillo makes a great point that these are just like blue collar workers. Like they're actually, say, I mean, on paper, they're saving money by having them go down and die uh, in the long run. So knowing that right. there's never like a, a chance encounter with a helicopter that could potentially find them. Like re, they are on their own for better or worse. There is no one coming. That adds a certain fatalism to this movie. Oh, no doubt. Um, there was an Ebert fun fact about this one too. I'm trying to remember. He said it was like, it was like the first movie that stayed with him so hard that he had to walk out of the next movie because he like couldn't stop thinking about the gray. Like it was so relentlessly brutal that he like couldn't focus on <laughs> reviewing the next film. Interesting. I mean, I do think the ending is really intense and is a big kind of leap from the narrative irony of like something like The Edge where, you know, the this man actually like calls to the heavens for support and sympathy. And, you know, then you kind of realize that he's on a journey of the damned. And it doesn't have the... The movie we're going to talk about next, Hold the Dark, has a kind of um, like nihilism and, and hopelessness to it as like a narrative construct or like a narrative move. And this movie kind of has the audacity in what is like a kick-ass Liam Neeson action movie to be like, there is no God, there is no hope. And you're going to watch your fucking movie star the whole time realize this in this really like dead ahead way. Totally. And there's nothing he can do about it. And he does not have the agency to change his station. Um, well, there's actually 10 things he can do about it, Noah. Oh, break a couple more airplane bottles of booze <laughs> on his fingers and 
You're, you probably think that he lives to tell the tale. Well, my friend, did you see the post-credit sequence of this film? Wait, there's a post-credit sequence? There sure is. He's just leaning against the wolf, and they're both, like, breathing. Like, they're both kind of dead and alive. Like, they might both make it. They both might not make it. I like the Sundance, Butch Cassidy and Sundance that it ends with now. Without the, in my mind. Yeah. I have to say, as much as I like the central Liam Neeson one-handerness, as we're saying, of this movie, I do feel like, other than Frank Grillo, the other characters, like Nonzo Anuzi kind of gets a bad, he's kind of as a bad uh, run of things. Also, these these genre films are not that great to, like the black fifth lead. <laughs> not remotely. Nonzo uh, Anuzi. And he... He, he yeah, plays the the wealthiest man in Karth in uh, early Game of Thrones. He plays Zaro, the oh, person yeah. that Danny like shoves in that vault at the end. Um, and he he actually does have like kind of a, a couple funny moments where he like wakes up ready to fight, but he just kind of succumbs to hypoxia, and it's like yeah, he how just like sad. has trouble. Yeah, like he doesn't get eaten by a wolf. He dies with shame, not being able to get <laughs> oxygen to his body. Um. <laughs> Yeah, and then that whole thing where it's like, oh, that name he's muttering under his breath when he wakes up in his delusional state, it's the dead it's the his dead sister from fifty years ago. It's like okay. Women men get eaten by wolves and women make meaning. What's so wrong with that? You're I mean, for this category, nothing. No, it's it's stupid (laughs) for sure. It's, it does feel sort of tacked on. Yeah, I wish there was more, because I think it does get a little, just especially how big the group is. I think The Edge benefits from the fact that pretty quickly it's just the two of them. Right. And in this one, like every sequence or every sort of act has a, you know, how are we going to dispatch with this person we know the least in ascending order? Uh, and it, it becomes a little pr- bit predictable in that way. Um but yeah, I don't know. Overall, I was I was pleasantly surprised by how competent and compelling this movie is. I mean, it's sort of like the, you know, it's it's the edge meets like Con Air or something, <laughs> where like seeing the other end of the social order of things. And again, I think it's similarly interested in class and political questions about labor. Um, but yeah, it, without having the you know, the glorification of the billionaire who's going to get away with it in the end. The self-seriousness of the movie is silly at times. I must say that, like, even in the the final moments are so intense, I definitely did, like, a, oh, my God, kind of, like, laugh during it. Um, but, yeah, I think I think it's a good movie. I think, it's, I think it is about as well as, like, a director who doesn't often make good movies can do... Um, kind of punching above his weight in this like really weird time for movies between like the edge and Netflix streamers. Totally. Yeah, no. And I think it's, yeah. And it's quite entertaining. It's, it's not even that gory. I mean, there's a lot of like people getting dispatched with, uh, you know, by wolves and other, uh, perils of the, (laughs) of the Alaskan wilderness. Um, wolves and perils of the land. Yeah. Wolves and the like, but yeah, it's it's 
it's a pretty pretty decent $50 million, $30 million. What was it? 25. 25. $25 million R-rated adult action movie. Um, and I give it a good good. Live and die this gray, my friends. Um, you want to talk about... Live and die this day. This movie's titled <laughs> The Gray. You want to really turn it into like more of a limerick kind of uh, rhythm. There, there once, once was, was an actor named, named Schindler. Oh. <laughs> uh, There once was a man who played Schindler, <laughs> whose bank account began to dwindle. Yes. <laughs> but did you say that movie was good? Good. I agree. It was good. Good. Yeah. Hold the dark. Twenty eighteen. After the deaths of three children suspected to be killed by wolves, writer Russell Core is hired by the mother of a missing six-year-old boy to track down and locate her son in the, you guessed it, Alaskan wilderness. Dear Mr. Core, three days ago, my son Bailey was taken by wolves. No one in the village will hunt them. My husband will come home from the war soon. I must have something to show him. So you come to kill it? To kill the one that took him? I came to help if I can. To explain this if I can. It's not the first time people died out there. The hillside is scattered with pieces of bodies. That's what you get when you talk to the villagers. People are dying. That's real enough. So this is a Jeremy Solnier-directed film. Um... Notable for such movies as uh, Green Room and Blue Ruin. He likes to make these um, like just real gritty, um, like low note uh, genre crime. And when the violence pops off in a Jeremy Saulnier film, it, it fucking pops, um, as is true in this one. Um, almost like surprisingly so. I think that I think the violent incident, like at the center of this film, is kind of it's kind of unbelievable. The gravity <laughs> kind of right. takes like almost steals away from everything else. To your like, was that wait was that scene actually the movie? What are we watching here? Totally. Yeah, you're kind of waiting for the. We are kind of waiting for the movie to reveal if it is like the edge or the gray. Um, or like Wind River, uh, or whatever right. cold crime movie this happens to be, and it it kind of like never picks. You know, the first half of the movie is Jeffrey Wright answers another handwritten letter. God, these movies love the handwritten letter. Uh, they don't have the, from this. They don't have the Microsoft Word up there. I was wondering, like how the does the post office work like how did the letter get to him whatever um so yeah riley co is that how you say her name cow keo q keo 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 riley keo writes him a letter he unplugs his christmas lights and he's like i'm on my way i don't know you for shit but again 
I'm a man who has trouble expressing his feelings, who's been moved by women. This particular woman is his daughter, uh, grown daughter, who's like also teaching at the University of Anchorage. And this the vision, prestigious or- Jack London Chair of Anthropology <laughs> at the University of Anchorage. Um, I think this movie was troublesome to buy into because it, it is a it, it purports to be a very like grounded, uh, realistic movie. But just the fact that he just yeah like unplugs his lights and like gets the first economy class up to uh, key to it. What is it called? Their town key loot. Key loot, it, it kind of uh, it, it felt like the machinations of a screenplay to me. Yeah, machinations that could have been absolved if the movie was like a little more focused on Russell Core, or if it just like hung with Jeffrey Wright and like showed right. him in more situations being good and bad at things. Like I think it's a very totally. good performance. I mean, he's a, he's a really good actor, and I think there are a lot of times where for how little he says and for like what an obvious kind of like tough guy um speak softly carry a big sniper rifle archetype he is, um you know, it's it the moment you see him you're like, "What are you hiding under that beard, buddy?" Like what what's What's so vulnerable about you? And he communicates that right away. I just don't think the script puts him in enough situations to make that dimensional. No, and especially like the ending shot. Like I almost think that the movie should have hung with him instead of the, I mean, it is a very interesting opening visual sequence to sort of see the boy go missing um, and kind of figure out the logic of the movie. But ultimately, yeah, it's the story of this guy inventing a reason to get to Alaska in order to see his daughter and then getting ens- ensnared in this this crime thing that's happening. Um, this horror movie. Because this is more of like a horror movie, I would say, than the other two. Yes, I would agree. Because then it quickly kind of forgets Russell why well, so the, the the initial impression of him coming out and why he's going out there like kind of uh it was unbelievable to me and then I think the movie like kind of really lost me in the who is the protagonist of this movie question with the whole sequence like in Iraq or Afghanistan or something where you're introduced to Vern love uh Alexander Skarsgård but again Alexander Skarsgård playing a very Alexander Skarsgård role of quiet psychopath um yeah with a penchant for violence and seeing this like who kills well it also doesn't make any narrative sense either so the movie sets up in the first few scenes of jeffrey and riley like in key loot where there's nobody there's like a couple of prefab homes and some trucks and just sadness and they're trying to figure out like what happened to the kid and if the wolves took him or whatever and then he hears he kind of does the investigation of the other people the other kids that are missing but then the movie jump cuts to Iraq or Afghanistan where we pick up with with Alexander and we then see this like moral journey he goes on where he like stabs a fellow soldier because he's raping a local woman 
And then the movie needs a reason for, well, the movie doesn't need a reason for him to come home. Like the whole point of him looming in the background of like, why isn't the husband around to find your missing kid, Riley, would be answered by him just coming home because the kid's like presumably dead. Like, I don't know why they also need to give him getting shot in the neck and then that never being an obstacle for him as like part of the chess moving around of this movie. I have to assume that there's a lot of stuff in the, is it William Giraldi? Uh, Yeah, in the Giraldi novel that like is able to make good on this kind of like, like not only the relationship between Vern and um, Medora, but just like a lot of like the Yupik mythology with the wolves and their past and this whole exposition scene um, that happens later with like where character actor Peter McRobbie's in the movie for a minute and they're like, oh yeah, your dad came down here to get wolf oil because you were cursed or whatever. And just like <laughs> all this stuff that I think could work in a novel, but then when you turn it into essentially a split screen parallel roads movie, right. it's just like, I don't want, like, let me spend time with the detective in the detective genre, please. Like, I don't want to spend time with the psychopath being allegedly humanized by information like that doesn't go anywhere right you have either have to stick with Vern like coming home from the war uh and then like realizing that his son's missing and then going on this rampage or you have to stay with Russell um as he's like investigating and again yeah I think the Russell like having Skarsgård off screen would just do more to add to how fucking scary he is because you like totally. you don't have any humanity for this this person and like the only sequences where you ever see like the people who are from Alaska is scenes of hyper violence like I do think there's a lot of winning moments in the movie I thought the uh, the shootout in Kilut is like pretty incredibly done that's what I was alluding to earlier where like that I think this the movie goes from like a disappoint like honestly disappointing to decent simply because like that scene is so um like long and dynamic and powerful and frightening where like all of these you know they basically marshaled like every small town cop they can to go um question Vern's friends and the shootout of like you watch the cops like have the numbers <laughs> and then you watch those numbers like dwindle and dwindle and dwindle from the other guy's superior firepower. And even like the vapors of that scene being so scary where like Russell goes to dinner at James Badgedale's house and they kind of th- you meet the James Badgedale's uh, pregnant wife and you're kind of like you you really made it out, barely made it out of that thing today man and they're i would watch a movie where they drink whiskey by the sink and talk about barely making it out for it did have a like a nice sort of jawsy and like letting the red wine breathe kind of thing to it but yeah i would argue that again that's like russell and like if this is just sort of a more by the numbers um you know russell and uh james badgedale as the detective sort of coming together and solving the case, then you have something like in the insomnia worlds, whereas this, like I texted you when I was watching this, like this is just the most, you know, depressing and tedious version of 
outsider tries to figure out the weird, you know, light schedule of, you know, very northern Alaska uh, and then, you know, tries to solve a crime, but also maybe implicated in that crime. Yeah. Well, I don't know if we need to like spoil the end of this one necessarily because I don't know if the end is that interesting, but it is it's kind of like well, I didn't that. understand what happened at the end, so maybe you can tell me. <laughs> I, I I think like what what Russell discovers and th- again this is like a kind of uh iconoclastic narrative device is just like this wasn't his story. It turned out that he's just the guy who is the POV character who led us into a cave so we could see the story of like some other people. But like right. the movie, almost just by virtue of its form, again, because it's a movie and not a novel and we can't get into lore and we can't get into 20,000 leagues of exposition, like that just feels like, a, okay, I, I get what you're trying to say about the the overmatched detective bleeding against the rock. But like, again, like I had to watch it. And I had to, I had to reach this point, and I'm, I'm not satisfied by the sheer obliqueness of this understandable literary message. I also don't understand, like, who is Russell Core? He's like a. Is he a writer or a wolf hunter? <laughs> he like wrote a book about hunting wolves that were also killing children or something. Like he made be Jack years- London. Yeah, it was sort of confusing. Like he he was a naturalist who wrote this book, but like again, like I thought a smarter movie and maybe a cornier movie would have had like he wrote a book about killing the wolf that killed his kid. Like and then they could have trauma bonded over that. But that he was like, Yeah, I got kids and they're fine. They're they're adults and we're just estranged because I'm a dickhead. Yeah, I mean, you could do that. That'd be pretty on the nose, but like or, or, or just focus on like what it means to him to hunt kill or observe wolves at all and the only scene he does which again it's a good scene it's real wolves and they just kind of have to cut around him running into this pack which is pretty well done you can see they're cutting around it but it's 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 good photography um you kind of wonder like I, i thought maybe the movie was turning toward like it turns out he like made that book up that he he's not a good wolf hunter at all and he never killed any wolf because he sure seems not very good at it now Right. Yeah, it's it's unclear what his qualifications are and why he again, there's really no reason for him to be there. Like I think even giving him like, oh, he's like working on his follow-up. He's like a Truman Capote type or something and gets involved with these these people as like a story. And then your point about him realizing it's not his story to tell, you know, he'll never understand the full edges of it, like is a more potent, you know, narrative irony at the end. Uh but yeah, this one is just sort of confused. Yeah. As it becomes many different types of movie. And don't get me wrong, I like Alexander Skarsgård is essentially like a 6 foot 5 slasher is like well captured when he pays a visit to Megan Blair the the actor who uh, adapted this movie and is a constant collaborator of Solnier. That's like a pretty that's a good kill. I like it. Um, yeah it is a good kill but yeah he's like jason or freddy or something well sure and to that point like you wouldn't want to spend like five or ten minutes watching jason Voorhees just kind of like interview people from his past right and again i don't understand Vern's intentions like why is he killing everyone to to bury his boy in a different way 
to find his wife? Can't he just find her? It seems like he definitely goes out of his way to like kill a lot of people for revenge, but I just don't know what he's that upset about. Well, the guys at the police station he kills so he can get the body. But wouldn't he... they release the body to him anyway at some point? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably. I mean, once the once they did the autopsy, they'd probably just give him the body. Right. Unless there right. was a reason they didn't want him to them to do the autopsy. But it seemed like they already knew how he died. I just don't. And then the larger question, too, of, like, why was the kid killed? And, like, oh, parents are the past, but kids, kids, they're the future. Is that what I'm supposed to take from this? And you sometimes have to kill the future to save the past? I don't know. It's a, it's a good line um, that uh, Chion delivers about how, like, when a when an adult dies, that's the past dying. When the kid dies, that's the future dying. But I, I don't really see how that relates to, like, yeah, the message. Because there's also that thing of, like, the wolves. The actual wolves in this movie, Jeffrey Wright is disturbed to find them, quote-unquote, savaging their babies. Like, when things just right. aren't, when there's a scarcity of food or there's some unbalance in the natural world, like, wolves would eat a pup for the greater good of the group. But, like, there's no, like, Rosemary's baby, like, the village of Kilut did this to... Right, right, right. Feed itself. And and I hate to bring this up, Chance. No, I love to bring it up. But we are... This movie brushes up against one of my favorite uh, movie movie quirks, which yeah. is... Are, is uh, are the characters themselves becoming yeah. uh, the animal that they're trying to fight against? Is this or big... Is, it, is this man large enough and scary enough to convince you that he's becoming red dragon and or gray wolf you don't want to know i'm becoming something right yeah see do you see what i'm becoming um yeah there's this whole thing where they're like medora the the mom like uh is wearing this mask and she comes out in the nude and she's like chanting like He's under there. He's under there or something. Yeah. And it's a haunting scene, but again, like it doesn't really, yeah. And then the whole illusion to like, oh, well, your, your dad said you were unnatural. So I gave him some wolf oil and now you got to take the body back. And like, are they living like wolves or something? Part of me when watching this movie, I was like, is this family team Jacob? Right. <laughs> hundred percent like i it would not have i i would have not have put this past this movie to have them be like werewolves like at, at one point i was convinced that the wolves eating the children were that they were them that might be a better movie yeah but maybe it would be silly but it would be um it would have a level of definition to it that this movie refuses to have it's a hard one for the rating system because it's I don't think that that's true. (laughs) There's just like parts of it that I that I like a great deal, like the Jeffrey Wright performance and the shootout and the Jeffrey Wright, James Badgedale relationship and how scary Skarsgård is like there's a for a movie that I think 
you're definitely about to give a bad bad and I probably should give a bad bad. There's a lot of stuff in it that I like pretty well for it being a bad bad movie, which is why I think it's a little difficult. But it's it's not watchable because it's incredibly slow and grim and confusing. And as much as I want to argue it's well made, it, it's one of those movies that has that just like absolutely central, unforced air of a script flaw which is just like, just don't go over there. Don't, don't spend your time over there. So yeah, probably a bad, bad, but I do like parts of it a lot. Yeah, I agree. Um, what, did, what did you say it was? Good, bad? Bad. I want to say good, bad, but I think it's probably bad, bad. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think the it needs to, it needed to make like a bigger central choice, you know, who the protagonist is, like what kind of movie it is. And then, I think with a movie like this where, you know, not only is the extreme weather kind of obscuring the actual shots themselves, but the story, like it's, it's obscure as to like what we're supposed to take away from this. Like, even if the, you know, the takeaway is something like everything is futile and we can never tell each other's stories, like fine, like make that more central to the conflict and the sort of more Hollywood devices of the reason these people end up in these rooms together. Um, and you know, in the Alaskan wilderness, but yeah, this one, I had trouble buying into the premise of it. And then was, I I didn't feel that rewarded from, you know, sticking that out to get to the good Alaska wilderness action stuff. Have you seen green room? No. It's, I don't know if you would like it, but I mean, it has an amazing premise. It's like this, this punk band with uh, Anton Yelkin and Ali Sharkat and uh, former Be Real guest Mark Weber goes to, uh, oh yeah, goes to this like punk club in the middle of the Oregon wilderness, but it turns out it's like a skinhead club and they have to like fight their way out and it's fucking nuts and just an absolutely insane cinematic experience, but in thinking about that movie compared to this one, I almost think that Saulnier, who, um, you know, it's no surprise too, he made a couple uh, True Detective episodes because this is like definitely on that frequency. But I think he kind of oh, works, totally. ag- works against his own strengths a little bit, which is just like absolute dogged intensity. And this movie is so roving and unfocused that like I think he does pretty well with the atmosphere, but it's kind of like, you're playing away from the thing that like you can do like few other people, man. So that's unfortunate. What are you going to do? You know, sometimes you're going to go make your Alaska movie and it's going to be a bifurcated narrative for some reason. Sometimes you lead the whole group into the wolf den. (laughs) I think we end today's show uh, smack in the middle of our own kill radius. We've, We've wandered into the wolf den. Um, no, you got anything else to anything else to say? I'm a little Alaskan out. Are you? You don't want to do runaway train insomnia and Balto after this? No, I would definitely do Balto <laughs> after this. Harrison Ford's uh, Call of the Wild straight to Disney Plus movie. No, Aww. can't can't commit to that. My mom did have a suggestion. She's like, I notice you're doing two Alaska wolf movies and one Alaska bear movie. Like you could do call of the wild that has wolves in it. And I'm like, bless you mom, but too late to change. It is too late to change. Uh, and we needed to do no. that. That was why we were here. Exactly.
we were right on the edge. Um, happy birthday, Charles. And uh, I'll, <laughs> see, I'll see you next time. <laughs>